Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome back. We're at 1 Samuel 27. We'll see if we can get into 28 as well. We've, we've hit an interesting place at the end of 1 Samuel. We, we keep ending chapters on cliffhangers. So up to this point, we've been largely tracking one continuous narrative. Occasionally, we'll leave David alone for a minute to go see what's happening with Saul. Uh, Last time I think that happened was with um, the priests at Nob. And when Saul is complaining that nobody ever tells him what's going on around him, which is, of course, part of the narrator making fun of him, right? Because his name means asked for, and he has to ask everybody to know what's going on. But since then, it's been more or less a continuous narration of what's happening to David. And now we're going to chop that up. We're going to have a chapter on David, and then we're going to hit pause, and it ends on this unresolved note. Then we're going to have a chapter on Saul, where we literally leave him in the dark with no resolution. And that'll flash back to another chapter on David in chapter 29. And we won't get any resolution about Saul until chapter 30. So I don't expect we'll get all the way through to chapter 30 tonight. So we're going to end on one or another of these cliffhangers. So just be warned. There you go. It'll keep people coming back, right? The best thing would be if going through this together, reading, discussing, um, you seeing things as you read the text and we talk about it, the most beautiful outcome in my mind would be that you are then encouraged to read the Bible for yourself more and that you see more in it as you do. So, so with that, why don't, we, why don't we pray? We'll pray to that end, and then we'll read chapter 27. Lord, we thank you for this time that you have granted to us. We thank you, as, as mentioned, um, for those who've gone before us and, and done the labor of translating the Bible into our language, some of them uh, at great personal cost, some of them at the loss of their own life that we might have the privilege of holding in our hands a Bible that we can readily understand and read together and read to one another. Lord, would you teach us more and more to treasure this great gift? And may our time together be something that encourages us uh, to delve into the scriptures more and more. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. 1 Samuel 27. I'll probably go a couple of verses into 28, and then we'll pause. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maoch, king of Gath. 
And David lived with Ahish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household. And David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremielites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. What do you see? What questions do you have? David is killing the women and children. Of whom? Whose women and children is he killing? Not Philistines. No, nope, not Philistines. Who does it mention? This is a really good question. These peoples that he's raiding are separated from the Philistines by territory of Judah. Well, so these are peoples that should have been conquered during Joshua's time, and for whatever reason, were not. Uh, but they're to the south, so the southern end of Judah extending down toward Egypt. They're not Israelites. They're not people of Judah. They're not Philistines, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So the Philistines would be more than a little troubled by David doing this. So, and it's interesting because David is doing to them what the people of Israel should have done during the conquest. And notice the mention of the Amalekites specifically in there. Think back to chapter 15, where Saul was charged with doing this to the Amalekites, along with the livestock and whatnot, and failed to do so. David's not charged with doing this to the Amalekites. Right? The Lord hasn't told him to devote the livestock to destruction. And David's in this difficult position where presumably he's going to be making raids on behalf of his Lord. And as he makes raids, he's going to get booty. And he's got to essentially send a tithe or a portion of that to Achish, to his commander. He doesn't seem too bothered by him 
going out and raiding them. Who does Akish think he's raiding? Judah. Yes. So this is important. This is an important detail. Uh, if you happen to have a map in your Bible that places Ziklag, I don't know if many of us do. Ziklag is on the border between Philistine territory and territory of Judah. Uh, it's outside the orbit of territory that the Philistines are easily able to control. Uh, but it does theoretically belong to the Philistines. Uh, so if you've got the ESV on the map, the 12 tribes of Israel, it's there. So southwest of Judah's territory, east of Gaza, south of Lachish, northwest of Beersheba, kind of out in the middle of nowhere there. And so by placing David there, Akish has a military commander in charge of a town on the frontier where he can serve as a buffer between Judah and the Philistines and where David is well positioned to make raids on Judah. And that's Akish's assumption is he has placed David somewhere where he can, he can very easily harass a whole swath of territory that's part of Saul's kingdom. And so David tells him that that's what he's doing. He believes him, has no reason to doubt him. And so he feels assured that well, David's going to be in his service for life, right? Because there's no way he can go back to Israel after this. They don't remember him killing Goliath and killing all those Philistines. He must have had his head buried in the sand or something. <laughs> Good, because this is the second time that he's come to seek refuge with Akish and in Gath specifically. He did that earlier in chapter 21, chapter 21, verses 10 and following. So at that point, right, he was recognized. People told Akish, look, this is the one who, you know, they sing in their songs, right? Saul has struck down his thousands and David is ten thousands. Like, you know, there's no way we can trust him here. And for some reason, at this point, and the, the narrator completely skips over how it is that David is able to find favor with Akish this time. Um, that's just, that's not narrated to us. It happens because he goes, and then in verse 5, right, David said to Akish, if I have found favor in your eyes, right, then let this town be given to me. Anytime that question is asked of a foreign king, the person asking has found favor in the eyes of the king that they're speaking to. And they're about to be granted a favor because of it. It's never asked like they're unsure. But how he came to win that favor, the narrator doesn't tell us. Maybe Akish has heard of what's happening with Saul. We don't know. Right? The details are, are kept from us. But for some reason... Maybe Akish is just that gullible. You know, he had no uh, right to think that David was completely on his side. Well, he knows that David is hunted. David and the 600 men with him. He knows that David and his men have come with their families. So they are essentially completely casting their lot with the Philistines. 
And they probably know, as we've seen, as we've watched David over the last few chapters, that David has had no refuge among the people we would have expected him to be able to find refuge. His own kin are betraying him to Saul. So again, the narrator doesn't delve into how he's able to win favor with Akish. But I'm sure that these things that we've read about in the lead up to this chapter are part of the reason Akish finds it believable. Akish seems a little bit like Saul. How so? He trusts whatever people tell him. He trusts what people tell him and he doesn't really know what's going on. Yep. Except Saul has it out for David and Akish is like, come on. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, Saul believes that David is his enemy, even though David has made clear to Saul that he is not Saul's enemy. Two, Akish doesn't see David as the threat to his throne as Saul does. Mm-hmm. When you're not under a threat, things walk along. Yeah, I mean, in Akisha's eyes, David is just a particularly skilled mercenary. He's a man without a country and needs a job. And Akish can give him work. On that note, by the way, it's, it's very, very rare for the narrator to let us know what someone's thinking. Almost never happens. Almost always, we have to figure characters out by what they do and what they say. But twice in this chapter, we're told what characters are thinking. First is David at the beginning of the chapter, and what he's thinking seems to be correct. And then Akish, we're told what Akish is thinking at the end of the chapter, and Akish has been duped, as it turns out. But it's worth pointing out that that's, that's extremely unusual that we actually get that window into a character's inner thoughts. It, in verse 12, it says, he's, um, therefore he shall always be my servant. Is he saying that like he, he'll always be my mercenary? Or is he saying that like he's going to make David his servant? Servant in the sense of a mercenary under his command, working for him. Again, David's a man without a country. He has no hope of going home. And Akish has been led to believe not only has David been chased out of his homeland, but now David has taken up arms against his homeland. And so there's no way they would take him back. Now, this puts David in a pretty precarious position, right? Because he's working for Israel's enemy. At some point especially working so closely with Akish, it will come to a place where he's going to have to choose between fighting for Akish against Israel or switching sides. Right now, he is serving in the army of the enemies of the people of God. Although he has not met either Saul or Israel on the battlefield in that position. But he set himself up such that he, he will have to at some point. And think about that in terms of what we've been tracing out over the last few chapters, thinking about God's providence, thinking about its interaction with, with human decision and human action. David has painted himself into a corner. And in that light, it's very interesting that there is no mention of the Lord anywhere in this chapter. Although, 
David's estimate of the situation does seem to be correct at the beginning of the chapter. Right? One of the things that he says to himself is, right, there's, I've got to go. Uh, I sh- there's nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer and I'll escape out of his hand. Right, that's verse one. So he goes uh, and verse four, when it was told to Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So David was right as far as that goes. Is it just thrown in there about the two lines? Or is that just a repeat from a couple of chapters ago? I, I guess I'm wondering why they mentioned them specifically. A good question. I think there are at least three reasons that they're mentioned specifically. One is because they're with him, right? And we know their names. Um, and, you know, maybe if we knew the names of some of the wives of some of the other people who are with him, maybe they would have been mentioned as well. They're also mentioned because of their connections, right? Um, one, right, they're, they're both from families in Judah. And so if they're having to flee with David, it lends credence to the thought that he has no refuge among the people of Judah, right? That Judah's cast him out. Uh, and third, I think they're mentioned because they're going to come up here in a couple chapters when, when bad things happen. And David's going to be worried about them specifically. So there's a little tie-in to the to be continued. Is Michael still his wife at this point? Legally, I think yes. But Saul has taken her and given her to another man. I mean, it just sort of bothered me. He yeah. brought his two wives and she wasn't one of them. Yeah, well, he has no access to her because she stayed behind when he initially fled. Why she didn't flee with him or join him at some later point, I mean, Jonathan at least could have told her where he was. Probably anybody except Saul could have told her where he was. So why he, she doesn't join him at some later point before Saul gives her away, I don't know. It would have been interesting to... If, if David had used um, his priest and asked God what he was supposed to do and not gotten in this situation, what God might have done. Yeah. That brings up an interesting connection. It's, it's never expressly mentioned in the text. But remember, he has a priest with him and the ephod is with him. So not only does that mean that he could have inquired of the Lord, but it also means that the means for inquiring of the Lord go with him into Philistine territory. They leave the borders of Israel altogether, which will be important in the next chapter. It's a short period of time for David to gain the confidence of uh, Akish. Actually, 16 months is a short time, relatively. Yep. It, it, it almost, it, it appears to me it could be that God just gave him favor. That's the reason why the, the king of Akish looked upon him with, with favor so, so quickly. Yes. Must have been pretty charismatic. I mean, everybody seemed to like him. He's so a good warrior, too. Yeah, but I mean, everybody seemed to like him. So don't you think he was sort of charismatic? I mean, just... Well, it's kind of people that people are attracted to. 
I mean, if a quiche could have gotten as a warrior, that'd be like getting Michael Jordan on your basketball team. Well, they, uh, also, the scripture says that he was a, a kind of a handsome man. That sometimes helps, too. Maybe a quiche with a little lame of loafers. Right. <laughs> I've got to take Kitty's place since he's not here. Yeah. So note that the, the concern of the corner that David has painted himself into is made explicit by the narrator in those first two verses of chapter 28. So David has put himself in a position where he could have to meet Israel on the opposite side of the battlefield. And the very first two verses of chapter 28, that's what's going to happen, right? In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, and notice the ambiguity in what David says, which Achish does not pick up on, right? He says, very well, you shall know what your servant can do, right? Does that mean I can show myself a warrior on behalf of the Philistines? Or does that mean I can show an an incredible ability to turn myself around and fight for Israel after all, right? David just leaves that completely ambiguous, even though he's painted himself into this corner. And Achish takes it positively, right? And said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And he's not saying, yeah, about that. I'm going to keep you close so I can keep an eye on you. What he's saying is, Show yourself a man, keep doing what you're doing, and you will always be in my service in a position of high honor, a position that he held for Saul previously. So David is now on his way to the battlefield facing the one scenario he absolutely wanted to avoid where Saul and the armies of Israel are going to be on that side. And David is going to be with the army of the Philistines on the other side. The narrator sets that up for us and says, okay, let's talk about Saul for a chapter. So to be continued. So we look at chapter 28, starting in verse three. Now Samuel had died. We already know that. It's already been mentioned. So why, why is that mentioned again? Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, seek out for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. 
When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to you. So I have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. All right. What do you see? Why is the um, medium a woman? It's a good question. She happens to be. And the word for medium, the word for necromancer may just be terms for a woman who does this or a man who does this, right? Someone who calls up dead spirits and consults them. So uh, by medium, we mean someone who acts as a channel for accessing spirits or the dead in particular. There's so much irony in him saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Because if the Lord lives, punishment will come upon her, just not by his own hand. Yeah. And then he's turned his back on the Lord. He's swearing by the Lord. I'm going to swear by the name of the Lord, who won't answer me, by the way, which is the reason I'm here, that no harm will come to you as you do something the Lord expressly forbids. Yeah, lots and lots of irony. Good. What else do you notice? So David must not be in the the, uh, foreground because um, uh, he doesn't, Saul doesn't recognize David or his men. So... So we've left David for a moment. We've left on that cliffhanger. uh, And now we're following Saul. And whether this is happening at the same time or a different time, 
Saul and David don't have the opportunity to encounter one another here. That, that will come later if it's not averted. But what I'm saying is he, he, was a, he had seen the Philistines and he was so afraid of them. But David must not have been in that grouping. Yeah, it may have been that um, they're far enough away that Saul can't tell who's among them. Maybe all he can see is the size of the force. In previous chapters, we're told something about the ratio, the vast host of the Philistines, the small number of the Israelites. Here, we don't get that. All we get is that Saul sees the Philistines and he's terrified. Saul, whose one job, right, was to what? Deliver Israel from the Philistines. And he's terrified of them. Sort of interested in a medium, which, whatever, could call up somebody on God's side. I mean, he was pretty ticked, but, you know. <laughs> yes. He still got summoned by... And she wasn't a woman of God, but, Yeah. Yep. But I guess evil, he was summoned by evil to come. Yes. That's confusing. Yeah. We, I think, are most bothered by, in this chapter, among other things, but, but particularly by the fact that Saul goes to do this and it seems to work. That's weird, right? Our assumptions are that that, that would not be the case, that this must be a deceiving spirit, something like that. Uh, and that's something that the Old Testament never does. The narrator doesn't do it here. It's not done elsewhere in the Old Testament, right? The narrator never steps out from behind what he's reporting to us and says, now, by the way, this isn't real. That wasn't really Samuel. Never says that. Leaves us with the clear, distinct impression that this really is Samuel adds an edge, as we commented a few chapters back, to um, Samuel's comments to Saul the last time they were together. You will not see me again until the day of your death. Right? And, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, mediums, necromancers were never told that it's what they're doing isn't real. We're told, don't do it to cut them off from the land, right? To put them to death if you find them. But we're never told it's not real. Where is Endor? It's on the other side of the Philistines. Based on where the armies are positioned, Saul either has to go a long way around or possibly has to sneak through Philistine lines to get there. Actually, it's not deep in Philistine territory. It's that the Philistines have come far enough in that, that where we first meet Saul and where Endor is, there are Philistines in between. Uh, Endor is on the border, and so it may or may not be under Israelite control, right? Like Saul, and that may be part of why there's still a medium there. Although, did you notice that? There's this one more jab at Saul in that he's, it's kind of like David, right? Everybody knows where David is except Saul. 
Saul thinks he's cut off all of the mediums and necromancers from the land, but nobody has any trouble finding one as soon as he asks for one. Okay, so it's deeper into Israelite territory than I thought then. Let's see. Which map are you looking at? Oh, you've got the study Bible. Okay, never mind. That's cheating. Is it significant that when we read this story, this is the only story we were reading of Saul's life, the medium looks like a more likable character than Saul does? I'm not sure she's more likable. I think especially because when she calls up Samuel and Samuel gives Saul bad news, that she's probably in fear for her life and trying to place an obligation of hospitality on Saul. Uh, now, if she knew Saul's character a little bit better, she probably wouldn't be depending on that. But I think she's actually going out of her way to try and stay in Saul's good graces as well as she can, despite the fact that the spirit that she called up told Saul something he very much did not want to hear. That's left really nebulous for us. He's, he's able to be called up from the grave to speak to Saul. And he's recognizable as Samuel. And there, there's a delightful detail in the midst of that. When is he recognized as Samuel? By the witch. But what details are given when he's like, oh, yeah, that's definitely Samuel. A robe. a robe. Same word for robe that has frequently in this narrative referred to Saul's robe and the emblem of his kingship, like the robe that David cut the corner off of. She sure was a quick cook. I mean, to kill it. I, I still am just fascinated how fast these people put these together. What was the significance together? of him eating with the witch? I got the impression that that was something he shouldn't have done. Yeah. I mean, he's shared a meal with her now, right? He has eaten in her home. He has broken bread with her across huge swaths of history and all over the world. That means that he is in fellowship with her. He has enjoyed her hospitality. There are now bonds between them, which make for her safety and would place him under all kinds of curses if he were to do anything to her. She's, she's very clever in doing that. And it's narrated quickly, but, but she's actually keeping him there for a considerable amount of time, right? Because she's having to slaughter an animal, which you don't just do. Like she's not digging through the pantry for a can of spam, right? She's actually going out to the pasture, getting a calf, slaughtering the calf, preparing the calf, and then cooking the calf and then serving the calf. She offers him a meal fit for a king on the heels of the moment where he's finally expressly directly told David is the neighbor to whom the kingdom will be given. 
He already knows. He's already figured that out a couple chapters earlier. But this is the first time that he is clearly expressly told that. He wants a word from the Lord, and that's the one he gets. The Lord's not going to answer you. David will be king in your place. You're going to die. At least he got a good last supper, I guess. Yeah. And the witches. <laughs> yeah. He got a steak on his last meal. <laughs> And it, it's also, uh, she says, it was a, a fattened calf, uh, which indicates to me that the animal was for some special occasion or something. Mm-hmm. And it would have taken quite a bit of time, five, six hours anyway. Yeah. We don't know what time he gets there, but we know it's, it's well into the night when he leaves. Uh, and there's, there are several layers to that, right? It's dark, so he's able to sneak past the Philistines under cover of darkness. It's dark because he's in the dark, right? He has wanted an answer, but the answer still leaves him in the dark, as we would say. And she sees uh, Samuel first. She says she, she sees a God. Yes. Is there significance in that? Yes. So the phrasing of her comment in verse 13, it should actually say, I see God's coming up out of the earth. Uh, the word for God in Hebrew, it's, it's plural in form. When it's used with a singular verb, right, then we would say God, capital G. When it's used with a plural verb, we would say lowercase g and God's. And here it's actually with a plural participle. So the question is, Is she saying, I see divine beings coming up out of the ground? Is she seeing multiple spirits? Is this a technical term as she uses it for necromancy? And we don't have enough examples of necromancy to know. But Saul clarifies in his next question. She appears to see multiple things coming up out of the ground. And, but he says, and his question is singular. What is his or what is its appearance? So as she's in the process of calling up Samuel, it seems that multiple things actually come up and she's got to distinguish between them. And interestingly, Saul doesn't seem to be able to see Samuel, at least, at least at this point. Yeah, he can clearly... And I've got this I saw a spirit ascending from the earth. And then Saul asked, what is his form? Yeah, yeah, the Hebrew text is plural, and our English translations are trying their best to make sense of that. Saul, when he fell uh, down in front of this spirit or because of the words, do you think he thought that there was a possible chance that things would be different? I don't think so. Yeah, if you're looking at verse 20, it tells us that he, he's filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And, but based on the continued description of him throughout that paragraph, he doesn't seem to have any hope for a change. He's just struck dumb with fear so that he can't get up, he can't eat, he can't, he can't do anything. This was the first time Samuel had told him that this kingdom would not be his line. Yes, so what's new? What's new in what Samuel tells him here? Because it's not news that he's not going to have a dynasty. 
And it's not news that the kingdom is going to be taken away and given to another. And it's not really news that David's the one it's going to be given to. Saul's known that for a while, even though he hasn't been, that hasn't been confirmed by the Lord. So what's new that would account for his reaction here? Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Yeah, you're going to die. You're going to die tomorrow. That's new. And along with it, Israel will be delivered over to the Philistines. You and your sons will be in the grave with me tomorrow. And Israel will be delivered over to the Philistines. That's new. And there's no unless. There's no except. There's no... But David will come riding in on a white horse at the last moment and save everything. It's, it's doom. And in a sense, it's just, except for the nation being added to that, it's just, you consulted a medium, the punishment is death. Right? That's straight out of Leviticus. Why did she suddenly recognize who Saul was when she saw Samuel? It may be that once she saw Samuel over here and Saul over there. She's like, oh, now I can place him. Uh, that's my best guess. I wonder if Samuel maybe addressed Saul and said, Saul, what are you doing here? Yeah, I mean, maybe he comes up out of the ground saying, good grief, Saul, what do you want now? Yeah. <laughs> He's clearly unhappy about being disturbed. Why does Saul spend so long? Because he comes one night, then he leaves the next. Part of it seems to be that he's just frozen, struck with an inability to do anything after that confrontation with, with Samuel. He's going to leave him to die, too. Yeah. I'd be procrastinating. You'd think he'd repent. You would think so. Option given him, though. Yeah. yeah, but you sure would give it a shot, wouldn't you? <laughs> it would appear that uh, Saul was trying to find out what the end result was going to be. But when Samuel answered him, he says, why didn't, uh, you know, he, he said, therefore, I'll tell you what I should do. And, then, and Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? It's as if Saul was thinking that Samuel could do something, maybe, or something of this nature. Yeah. And Samuel tells him things, but not what to do. And keep in mind that um, right, it, it frames this episode with that introduction in verse 3. Samuel had died, and Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. So all the legitimate and illegitimate means of inquiring of the Lord are out of Saul's reach. Samuel's no longer around. We've met Gad, the prophet, speaking to David back in chapter 22. But we have no reason to think that Saul is, has access to him. Saul has chased the legitimate priests out of the land. Uh, so he has no prophet. He has no priest. He has no mediums or necromancers. He has no means to inquire. Uh, we've talked over the last few weeks about whether Saul set up non-priest priests and he may have because there's a mention that he's not answered by Urim, which is like Urim and Thummim are the means by which the priests would acquire, would inquire, sorry. And so if he has priests, they're not helping him. And so he has no access to any 
means for inquiring of the Lord, right? And the Lord's not answering him by dreams either. And so he inquires through Samuel and he hears the word of the Lord declared to him, but he doesn't have an answer to his inquiry. What should I do? Die. Well, to me, it's real clear in verse three why it states again that Samuel had died and yeah. that Saul had put out all the medium and so forth out of the land so that you realize why Saul then had to go kind of sneak around to find somebody. You know? Yes. Although also, given that nobody has any trouble finding one, we also see just one more example of his ineffectiveness as a leader. No. His inability or unwillingness to do what the Lord required of him. So how's this going to resolve? Right? We now have two cliffhangers. David is expecting to have to meet Israel on the battlefield and choose sides in the middle of the fight. So he's in a big pickle. And he's got 600 men and their families depending on him. It's not just David by himself. So whatever he does, they've got to be willing to go along with him. And their families are not going to be there at the battlefield. Their families are going to be back on the Philistine side of the border, where if things go badly in the battle and the Philistines are not completely routed, the Philistines can go do what they want to those men's families. So David is, you could say, between a rock and a hard place in a big way. And then we, we leave him there. And now we follow Saul. Saul, whose name means asked or asked for, and he's asking, he's not getting an answer, and we leave him in the dark, expecting his death and knowing that Israel under his command is going to be defeated by the Philistines. What's going to happen? And we're left with that. Then we move into chapter 29. We're going to switch back to David. But that's going to leave us again. Then we're going to switch back to Saul. And we'll see how things resolve, or if they do. We're going to switch back to Saul to chapter 31, though. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so David should be 29 and 30. And then Saul is chapter 31. So the to be continued is going to stretch out even a little bit longer. Now we're going to estimate God what he's got in his plans. David, through his schemings without recourse to inquiring of the Lord, has put himself in a position that only the Lord can get him out of. And Saul, through his schemings, has put himself and the nation in a position that the Lord has expressly declared to him he will not get him out of. So we've seen all along Saul's actions have meant bad things for Saul and Saul's house. But now Saul's actions mean bad things for Israel. So we're left asking again, as we have at a, at a few points earlier, what will become of God's people? And what will become of the declaration that David will be king? And what will be left for him to be king over after the battle that we're drawing near to? We'll leave it there. This isn't our first time reading it. So we know that things will shake out. We know that the Lord will protect his people. We know that the Lord will see David to the throne that he's promised to him. But, I mean, 
how would you counsel David? How would you counsel Saul in this moment? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just the history of your faithfulness to your people, both through and despite those who lead your people. Lord, we pray that you give us godly leaders, leaders like David in his good moments. We thank you that we see more than one side of David here. We see his faults as well as his strengths. And we thank you that you continue to walk with him and work through him despite those faults. We pray that we would be like David in our willingness to repent, to hear your messengers as they are sent and as they confront us with sin. We pray that we would not be like Saul, inquiring of you when it strikes our fancy or when we've gotten ourselves into a jam, but otherwise unwilling to hear your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus to whom David points. Would you be with us this week? Would you grant the rain that we anticipate coming tomorrow? Would you watch over us and protect us this week? We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.